uh, to teach us, to train us, um, and Lord, that contained in it is everything that we need for life and godliness. And so, Father, we thank you for this word today. We pray that you'd speak to us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what is, uh, what's the most afraid you've ever been? And I mean like heart racing, you're sweating, pupils dilated, you're pretty sure you're not going to make it through, most afraid you've ever been. I want you to think about that. I want you to, as best you can, try and feel that. Uh, and I'm going to tell you, um, I've got quite a few actually, um, but the most terrifying for me was whitewater rafting through Royal Gorge and the Colorado River. And uh, we, so uh, three friends and I decided one day that we were going to go rafting. We ended up meeting a guy who was a river guide and he goes, hey, don't pay the company. I've got my own boat. Just pay me and I'll take you down the river. And what he didn't tell us is that his boat is half the size of a normal boat. And so on these normal boats, he'd still put like five people on these really big boats and it's much more stable and much more safe, but he's got one that is tiny and me and my three friends, three of us are about my size and one is about half our size. And so it's not really an even boat. Um, and so we get on the river and he's, you know, he gives us something like a safety thing, but not really, cause you know, it's just kind of like, it's not really an official tour down the river. And so he's like, you know, just, just hold on tight when we get to the, to the rapids, but you need to know we're gonna go through several class five rapids. And if you know anything about rafting, class five is the hardest, the most dangerous. And so he goes, when we get to those, just listen to everything I say and do exactly what I say, do nothing different. And so we're kind of going down the river and we get through one or two of these class five rapids and we're in this like low and he goes, okay guys, listen, we're about to go through the most dangerous one uh, in this whole section. So you have to do exactly what I say because we're gonna have to jump over this rock that's called the Volkswagen Beetle because it just looks like a Volkswagen Beetle. He goes, we're gonna have to launch over it and we're in a much smaller boat so you're gonna to have to like really dig in as hard as you possibly can so we don't get stuck on top of it. He goes, if we get stuck on top, we're dead. I'm like, okay. And so I'm in the front on the right. The other two guys my size are behind me making a, a strong triangle. And then the smaller guy is up here. And he was not pulling his weight all day. And so we're all digging in really hard. And he's just kind of like, you know, looking at birds or something. And we hit, Volkswagen Beetle, and we get stuck. And um, let's just say the guide is a person who goes down this river two or three times a day, every day in the summer. And the string of words coming out of his mouth are things you might not even hear in a prison yard, okay? <laughs> he is freaking out. And so we somehow get dislodged by turning around. So we go backwards into a class five rapid, and now we're just, we're just wherever it takes us, we're going. And I thought, I thought that was it, I thought we were dead. Because he said, if we don't hit this just right, we're dead. And we end up kind of getting spun around in this rapid and the front of the boat hits like a canyon wall and bounces us backwards and actually somehow bounces us out of the, the raft. And we made it through a lot, obviously. We made it through a lot. <laughs> um, I mean, I was utterly terrified. I, I really thought that was the end. And actually after we got to the end, um, we were, sort of with the guide kind of talking about uh, what happened throughout the day. He said, you know, it was just a couple of years ago that someone uh, fell out in that rapid and they had to actually stop the river because they, they drowned. Um, and so 
Uh, that's maybe one of my most terrifying moments, and that's the feeling. Are you feeling that now? Have you got one of those and you're feeling a little bit of that? Because that uh, is where the nation of Israel is at in the series that we're in. So all summer we're going through a series called Strength and Courage, and we're looking at the Old Testament book of Joshua. And where we pick up the story in Joshua in chapter 3 is that the nation of Israel, they're facing one of their most fear-filled moments. Uh, One of the moments that um, would obviously fill them with great fear. Um, And uh, so, I mean, theirs has to do with being faithful to God. Mine was just being stupid and reckless, really. But they're filled with this great fear. And so the nation is standing on the banks of the Jordan River. And they all know that on the other side are all those peoples that were that you heard about and the you know the Amorites and the Gergesites and the mosquito bites and all those people they're all over there and um, they're terrified of that but before they even get there they've got the river in front of them they've got to cross the river and when you think about the Jordan River please divorce from your mind any image that you have of the river a couple of blocks this way okay um, the Jordan was nothing like the LA River uh, let me put it this way. The Jordan River was, how do I say this? It was a river, an actual river, okay? It's nothing like what you maybe saw this morning. And we'll see more on this in a little bit. But Israel is standing on the banks getting ready to cross the river, and the river is actually at flood stage. And it's fast-moving water, and maybe it's like a giant Class 5 rapid, I don't know. And so this is the moment of fear for this generation of Israel. And so it makes sense why Joshua chapter 1 says four times, be strong and courageous, right? As the nation is starting out on this journey into the land, God says to them three times, be strong and courageous. And the people say back to Joshua one time, be strong and courageous. And so four times it says to be strong and courageous. And why does it do that? Well, because you fight fear with strength, right? You fight fear with courage, right? That's, that's what you do. But actually, if you were listening carefully when the passage was read, what was the very last thing it said? Look at it. Verse 24, chapter 4. It says to fear. It says, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful so that, and so that you might always fear the Lord. And notice who they're supposed to fear and who they're supposed to fear. The nation of Israel, it's God's people. They're supposed to be the ones afraid. They're supposed to be the ones that have fear. And it's God who they're to fear. So which is it? Is it be strong and courageous or is it fear? Which one is it? Uh, Well, we're going to see actually it's it's both. But to get to there, you're going to have to take a long walk with me through the whole passage to see it. Uh, And as we go along this walk through the passage, what we're going to see are three things. The third one is fear. The right kind of fear actually leads to strength and courage. Uh, So the three things are this. Strength and courage are manifested in your life when you acknowledge the presence of God, when you remember the works of God, and when you fear the goodness of God. And if we can get those three things, we can walk into just about any situation with strength and courage. And so, you know, I don't know what situations you're facing right now. It might be that you're facing one you don't know what to do. It might be you're facing one that's terrifying. It might be one that is inducing anxiety in you, whatever it is. I don't know what it is that you're facing, but 
If we can get these three things, you can walk into whatever it is with strength and courage. And so let's dig into this. First, acknowledge the presence of God. And here we are, yet again, talking about the presence of God. It continues to show up all through Joshua. But what is really so, it's really so striking is that Moses' prayer in Exodus 33, which we looked at a few weeks ago, it's still being answered. God is still being faithful to his promise to Moses and to Joshua that he would go with them into the promised land. And the presence of God in this passage, it's so striking, it's, it's almost impossible to miss it. And here's how. Uh, 17 times in chapters 3 and 4, 17 times the author mentions the Ark of the Covenant. And I know I mentioned Indiana Jones a few weeks ago. Yes, that Ark of the Covenant, okay? 17 times he mentions the Ark of the Covenant. And at this point, by the way, they've been carrying the Ark of the Covenant around with them for 40 years. So they know it well. And yet it comes up again and again. And the Ark of the Covenant, by the way, it's not just any old box. It was the place where they kept Moses' staff, the one that he used to strike the Nile River and the plagues happened. It was the one he stuck in the water in the Red Sea and the waters part is the one he used to strike the rock and water came out. And not only that, but the, the two stone tablets that had the law written on it were in there. And this, so this box, it's, it's, it's actually considered God's footstool. It sat in the tabernacle, and it was the place where, above which God's presence dwells. So that's the Ark of the Covenant. That's the box. In other words, it's connected directly to the presence of God. So wherever the box went, God went. Probably you should flip that. <laughs> and so God's presence is perhaps the main feature of chapter 3. Wherever you see something repeated that much in the Bible, stop and take notice because it's important. And what I want you to see is specifically how they acknowledge the presence of God in this passage. Because uh, they acknowledge his presence in two ways. Uh, look at verse 5. First, they acknowledge God's presence through being consecrated. Jo Joshua chapter 3, verse 5. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Now, the word consecrate, it actually means to set aside for a special purpose, a holy purpose. It means to put off to the side what is common and mundane and everyday so that you might be wholly and exclusively devoted to God and his purpose and glory. And according to the law of Moses, it meant to consecrate yourself actually meant a few very specific things. So here's what you would do. You would fast so you wouldn't eat. You would wash your clothes. And you would actually abstain from sex for a short period of time, for the time of consecration. Now, these are all external things. But the external is only a means to symbolize an internal resolve to examine your life. So consecration is like, I'm going to look in. I'm going to examine my life. I'm going to see where it is that I've turned away from the Lord. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to repent. I'm going to set myself apart unto God. That's what it means to consecrate yourself. It means to set aside indifference to the Lord or half-heartedness. It means to be all in. And think, think about how important this is when you're afraid. Think about how important this is when you're afraid. In the midst of your fear, what are you consecrated to in that moment? You've either set yourself aside to the thing that you're afraid of, or more likely, you've actually consecrated yourself to yourself. What are you thinking about? You're thinking about the consequences. You're thinking about how it's going to come down on you. And so you become the main focus of your life in that moment. 
As you think about the consequences of whatever you're afraid of in that moment overtaking you, you're, you're consecrated to yourself. And just stop and think about our culture for a minute, especially a city like, like L.A. We live amongst a whole people consecrated to themselves. That's the point of this city. You come here to make something of yourself. A whole society of people consecrated to themselves. And so it's easy for us to be drawn into that way of thinking and living where you become center stage. And everyone else around you is like a supporting character in your life. Where your wants, your desires, your needs, they're more important than everyone else. And so we tend to think that the way we overcome fear is to put ourselves in the spotlight. To, to big ourselves up, to exalt ourselves, to self-consecrate. But to consecrate yourself to the Lord means to take your eyes off of yourself, take yourself off of the throne, and put God there instead. Put the camera on God instead of on you. That's what it means to consecrate yourself to the Lord. Now, if you do that, if you do that, you will be an outlier. You'll be a weirdo. People will look at you with a strangeness. There'll be strangers on the one hand, they'll be saying, they'll be thinking, how could you be so selfless? What is wrong with you that you would serve in that way, that you would give in that way? But they'll also look at you with a different kind of strangeness. They'll say, how could you be so selfless? That's amazing. I've never met someone like you. And so the first way Israel acknowledges the presence of God is by making his presence front and center, by taking themselves out of the spotlight and putting the Lord there. They consecrate themselves to the Lord. They make him the center. And so step one in becoming strong and courageous in the moment of fear is acknowledging God's presence by consecrating yourself to him. But then the second way they acknowledge the presence is by their distance. Did you see that in verse 3? When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from the, your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Now, did you see that? As the presence of God goes out, the Ark, his presence, as it goes out, they are to follow it. And you would think it'd be like, I want to be as close to that thing as I can. I want to be as close to God's presence as I can because if anything is coming down, it's going to come down over there, not right here, because God's presence is here. And yet, they're supposed to follow at a great distance. 2,000 cubits is like half a mile. For those of you that think in football fields, it's 15 of them. Why so, why, why, why so far? Why not, why not get as close as you can? Why not be where the presence is? Because no one can get in there. Why, why be so far away? Why does God do that? Well, some people think it's because God's presence is so holy, people couldn't get near to it. But that doesn't seem to be the emphasis of the passage. The NIV translation that we're reading, it, has, it kind of smooths this over because the original Hebrew, the two sentences in verse 4, they're actually flipped around. The emphasis is on, in the original seems to say, don't go near it so that you'll know which way to go. It's the guide. Now, what's the point? Well, it, it says when the priest's feet touch the water, the flow of the river is going to stop. And I think God wanted the entire nation to see that happen. And so everyone stands 15 football fields away, looking down into the river valley as the priests walk 
with the Ark of the Covenant and their toes touch the water and God does this incredible miracle. He just stops the flow of the river and everyone gets to see it. And that way they know which way to go. That's the way the Lord is leading. And so God shows them his presence goes before them. So in other words, the distance implies they're to follow the presence of the Lord rather than go their own way. And surely, they're, as they're getting ready to go, I'm sure there were lots of people that went up to Joshua and they're like, hey, Joshua, this plan seems a little crazy. Uh, why don't we go up or down the river and find like a narrower spot? Why don't, why don't we do that? Or there'll be others who were suggesting, uh, you know, maybe we just wait a month or two for the flood waters to recede and then we'll do it. Or there might've been some who were like, hey, I can give swim lessons. And isn't that just like us? At almost every turn of life, we think we know the best way to go. And what do we do? We say, hey God, I wanna get over there. So let's go. And what are we doing at that point? We're saying, God, follow me as I go. And what God does with Israel here, he says, no, you follow me. I'm going to go a half a mile in front of you. And you're all going to see where I go. And you're going to see my power. You're going to see my presence. And then you follow me. So acknowledging the presence of God means he goes first. And we follow. And just step back and think about that for a minute. Where are you trying to lead at the moment? Where are you asking God to follow you at the moment? What's the spot in your life where you're like, hey, God. I think I know what's best here. You want to get on board? It's probably precisely in that area that the Lord's saying, hey, I'm going to go out a half a mile in front of you. And I love the drama of how this unfolds, the way Joshua tells the story of how God parts the waters of the river. If you were to read it again, you would see there's like statement after statement of like, they get ready, and then the priests go down, and then their toes get near the water, and you're like ready for the miracle to happen. And then there's this statement that is like, oh, and by the way, by the way, it's at flood stage. And you're like, it's like you're like building up this anticipation, and then it makes it even crazier. And then the very next verse is like, and their toes hit the water, and the, and the water stops. And so the first step in finding strength and courage in a moment of great fear is to acknowledge the presence of God, to allow him to go before you. But then notice, they're not just to leave this experience in the past like an expired Instagram story. They're supposed to remember. And that's point two, remember the works of God. The emphasis in chapter four actually has to do with the setting up of these 12 stones as a monument. Actually, it seems like Joshua... Uh, he does the one that God asked him to, and Joshua, he does a second one, like for his own, maybe. I don't know. He has the one set up on the other side of the water, like God tells him to. And before the priests leave, he's like, hey, could you also set 12 stones up right in that spot? Because I want to come down here one day when the waters are low, and I want to see it. I want to see the spot. And so the whole emphasis is on this monument being set up to remember. Chapter 4, verse 5, go over before the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan, each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israelites to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. 
when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Um, just after Easter, I uh, had to go to uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania for a few days. And I had a little bit of free time when I, was, when I first got there. And it's only maybe a 45-minute drive to Gettysburg. And I, I'm a, sort of, I love history, and so I was like, I, I, I can't miss this opportunity to go to Gettysburg. And so I made the drive uh, through the Amish country. It was, it was amazing. And you get to Gettysburg, and the whole town... And the fields surrounding it where the battle happened, the whole thing is a monument to what happened there. The whole thing is a monument to Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address. And that's what Gilgal was meant to be on the other side of the river. That when you go there, the whole place is meant to be a monument of this amazing thing. That if you go there, the only thing you can think about when you get there is what happened there. A memorial to the presence and power of the Lord on behalf of his People. And I, I mentioned last week that we don't really live in a culture that values history. We live in a society that values the immediate rather than the past. But as the story unfolds, as they're crossing the river, they're setting themselves up to remember. Why? Why is that? Why are they setting themselves up to remember? Uh, a few years ago, I read this book called Moonwalking with Einstein. Um, you'll have to read the book to find out why it's called that. Because if I tell you, it'll ruin it for you. But it's about this guy who decides he wants to become a memory champion. And so he starts to learn these memory techniques of like, how, do you, how can you memorize uh, the order of a deck of cards and spit it back out? Or how can you memorize a thousand names of something and put it back? And so the whole thing is about memory and how to train your memory. And in the book, he tells this story about this man who lived down in San Diego. And uh, he came up with this... Um, this virus and it, it ended up eating out uh, whole chunks of his brain and the part of his brain that it ate out was uh, the long-term memory and so to this guy it was like 1964 even though when this was happening it was uh, in the late 90s early 2000s and so this guy he only had a memory of like maybe a minute or two and so he would every time he looked at a newspaper he would cry uh, he, he couldn't make memories. He couldn't hold on to things. He couldn't... He only lived in the present. And uh, the author, uh, reflecting on that, he, he writes this. He says, Without the ability to compare today's feelings to yesterday's, he cannot tell any cohesive narrative about himself or about those around him, which makes him incapable of providing even the most basic psychological sustenance to his family and friends. After all, he can only remain fully truly interested in anyone or anything for as long as he can maintain his attention. Any rogue thought that distracts him effectively resets conversation. And he says this, a meaningful relationship between two people cannot sustain itself only in the present tense. So why does God ask them to remember? Because a meaningful relationship cannot, cannot sustain itself only in the present tense. And so here's the point. Our ability to overcome fear in the future is directly connected to our ability to tell a cohesive narrative about what God has already done. Our ability to trust that God will bring us through a fearful moment with strength and courage is directly connected to our ability to tell 
a cohesive narrative about the things God has already done in history and the things he's already done in, in your life. That's the reason for the, the monuments. That's the reason for building the 12 stones. And I love this from verse 6. It says, in the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. I mean, I can imagine it was just kind of like a pile of 12 stones. You walk in and like, well, that's not natural. Right? So children come, you know, to Gettysburg, as it were, to Gilgal. And they see this monument and they're going to ask, what's this here for? And it's meant to cause future generations to ask and for the current generation to tell the story and for it to be passed on generation to generation to generation. Now, I'm, this is a little bit Mr. Rogers, okay? So stick with me. This is a little bit Mr. Rogers here, but I, um, I'm going to set up a monument for ourselves, okay? This is a little Mr. Rogers. Um, but I'm going to tell you two stories. Um, I think it was about 1923. There's a group of people who bought this land that we're on right now. And they started meeting here under a tent. 1923. I don't know for how long they did it. I don't know exactly when this building was built. Um, but for probably months or years, a faithful group of people met here under a tent. And that group of people is the heritage of Christ Church Griffith Park. That's the start of the church that's been here for so many years, almost 100 years. Um, and those of you that have been part of Christchurch Los Angeles or Missio Day before that, you know that in January we started meeting under a tent. Same story. Um, and so here's our monument. Again, it's a little Mr. Rogers, um, but I got us a tent. There it is. Um, I thought it was gonna be twice that size. <laughs> But when it came on Friday, I was like, well, it's too late to find another one. So this is, this is what we get. Um, I got us a tent. And uh, it's meant to be silly. Okay, it's meant to stand out. So if you're rolling your eyes at this, that's the whole point. That you're supposed to look at this and be like, why is that weird thing up there? And I want it to be that way because I want it when, you know, when your friends come. When future generations come. When children are raised in this church and they see this silly little tent. Sitting up here, I think we'll put it up. This is where it gets even more, Mr. Rogers. Come with me. <laughs> and they see the tent. They're supposed to say, why is that there? And then we get to tell that story. Listen, our ability to find strength in future fear is directly connected to our ability to tell a cohesive narrative about the things God has already done. That's the point of the 12 stones. And so the first step to finding strength and courage in a moment of great fear is to acknowledge the presence of God. Secondly, it's to remember the works of God. And then thirdly, it's to fear the goodness of God. And so now we come to that last verse in chapter four, where they're told to fear the Lord. Right? I'll read it again. It says, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. What on earth are we supposed to do with this paradox? Be strong and courageous. Fear the Lord. Be strong and fear. What are we supposed to do with that? How can you be both courageous and fearful at the same time? Well, notice, look carefully at what it says. 
It says that God dried up the river for two reasons. And those two reasons are the answer to that paradox. Reason number one is so that the peoples of the earth, so not the Israelites, but everyone else, would know the hand of the Lord is powerful. The second reason, it says, and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. And so this is talking about two fears, two different fears. Uh, John Calvin would put it this way. Um, fear number one is fear of God the creator. Fear number two is fear of God the redeemer. Fear of God the creator, fear of God the redeemer. And what we see in these two reasons is that God is both terrifying and good. That the nations are supposed to look at this, hear the stories, and they're to be afraid. And Israel is to look at it and say, what a redeemer. Now, as often as the case, uh, C.S. Lewis helps us out here, but not in one of his deeply theological essays. He does it in a children's story. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Pevensey children, as they enter into Narnia, they're learning from, just following here, they're learning from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who are talking beavers. Uh, they're learning from them about Aslan, the king. Aslan, who's the creator. And they find out from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver that Aslan is not a person, but he's a lion. He's the king of the beasts. And this is what Susan says. She says, oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy? Safe, said Mr. Beaver, who said anything about safe. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And so Aslan, this, the great lion, he isn't safe. He's got claws, he's got the teeth, he's got the power, and yet he's good. And that's the picture of verse 24. Verse 24 refers to the power of the hand of the Lord. All through the Old Testament, you come across the hand of the Lord, and it's actually his hand of judgment. It's the very same hand the Lord performed the plagues of Egypt. The very same hand the Lord not only parted the Red Sea for Israel to pass through, but he made the waters crash down and defeat the Egyptians as they drown. It's the hand of the Lord that we've seen already defeated the Amorites. It's the hand of the Lord that just moments before stopped the flow of the Jordan River. All through the Old Testament, the hand of the Lord is a metaphor for God's power to subdue and to defeat his enemies. And so he isn't safe. He has such immense power and authority that no one can stand before him. The psalmist ex exclaims in Psalm 15, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous. And so as Mrs. Beaver would say, 
No one can appear before the Lord without their knees knocking. You see, you can only come before God the Creator if you know Him not just as God the Creator. You have to know Him as God the Redeemer. What verse 24 is saying, when it says you might fear the Lord your God, it's saying that you would know Him not only as Creator, but that you would know Him as Redeemer. Because unless he's your redeemer, you can't stand before him. If he's only creator, then he's only judge. He's only the authoritative judge. But if he's your redeemer, then he uses all of his power, the power of his mighty hand. He uses all of his authority, all the authority that he uses to stop rivers, to calm storms, to defeat armies with a word. He uses all of that, not against you, but for you. That's God the Redeemer. And what we see here in Joshua 3 and 4, when God acts as Israel's Redeemer by redeeming them from slavery, by parting the Red Sea, by parting the Jordan, we see that that's only part of what we see in Jesus Christ the Redeemer. Jesus Christ is God the Redeemer in the flesh. And when he comes, do you know this? When he comes, he also enters into the Jordan River. When he comes, he passes through the Jordan. And as he passes into the river, he walks into the the rivers of the water Jordan. He's baptized. He's buried. He takes what everyone was terrified of, of being buried under the waters. He is buried under the waters of the Jordan, but he's raised up out. And when he's raised up out, do you know what happens? The clouds part. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And the Father says from heaven, everyone who's there hears it, this is my Son whom I love and with him I'm well pleased. That is God the Redeemer. And yet at the end of Jesus' life, as he's hung on a cross and dying, it says that God forsook him. The one who is previously well-pleased, has now forsaken him, turned away from him. And at that point, rather than the clouds parting and the sky opening and the Spirit of God descending like a dove, it says that the sky went dark at midday. The clouds made a canopy of darkness. Why is that? It's because in that moment, God the Redeemer was doing his work of redemption. He was being God the Redeemer. In that moment, Jesus Christ was bearing the wrath of the Creator. The hand of God was against the Son of God in that moment. Not because the Son had sinned, but because you and I have. In that moment, Jesus Christ, God the Son, became sin, and he bore the wrath of God. And he did it on our behalf so that the clouds could part over us. So that the Spirit could descend upon us. So that God could say to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, with you I am well pleased. It's Jesus Christ, God the Redeemer, who passed through the waters of the Jordan. And also at the end of his life, he passes through the grave, he passes through death, he's raised to new life on the other side. God raises him from the dead and seats him in the highest place and gives him the name that is above every name. 
And it's where he is seated right now that he uses all of his authority, all of his power, all of his might, all of his strength for you. And that is why we can face fear with fear. Because we fear that God. We fear him as God the Redeemer. And so what are you facing? What is it that you're afraid of? What's the equivalent of the Jordan at flood stage for you at the moment? Whatever it is, be strong and courageous. For the Lord your God is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And so the first step to finding strength and courage in a moment of great fear is to acknowledge the presence of God, to let his presence go out before you, to consecrate yourself to him and to follow him. Second is to remember his works, to look back, to connect the narrative to your narrative today. And then thirdly, it's to fear the goodness of God and what he's done through Jesus Christ as God the Redeemer. I'm just going to leave you with a a little picture of what it means to fear the goodness of God. What does it actually mean? What does it feel like to fear God in this way? So it doesn't mean to be afraid of him. Um, Back into the line, the witch in the wardrobe, Aslan, the great lion, much like Jesus Christ, uh, he sacrifices himself for someone who's done something wrong. And uh, he actually, he dies on, on this great stone table. He's, he's sacrificed on this table, much like Jesus Christ is sacrificed on the cross. And then Aslan is raised from the dead. This is all meant to be a picture. Aslan is not Jesus, but is a picture. And here's what it says about what it was like to know Aslan. To be in his presence, to fear his goodness. After Aslan's race from the dead, there's this big party in Narnia, and Aslan, the great lion, he actually, it says he plays with the Pevensey children. Now, they're kids. It's a kid's story. So the lion is playing with them in this party. And here's what it says about it. Whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. Isn't that cool? And that's like the God who we fear. That's what, it's, that's what it means to fear him. It's, it's as much like a thunderstorm as a kitten. And when we know a God like that, when we know that he has all the power of a thunderstorm and yet all, all the softness of a kitten, we can be filled with strength and courage in the face of any fear because we know he'll deal with our fears like a thunderstorm. And he'll deal with ourselves like a kitten. That is God the creator and God the redeemer. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for this incredible story that we've looked at today. We rejoice that you are God the redeemer. Please, as God the redeemer, would you fill us with strength and courage as we Fear you as the Redeemer. Fill us with your strength, with your courage, and whatever it is we're facing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.